All right, guys, welcome back to the study of, yes, the book of Numbers. You know, just as a quick recap, I mean, the reality is, is, you guys, this is the craziest thing. This is it. This is the end of the study of Numbers. We have been, yes, this is for my friend Drew, Drew Gibbs. We've been plowing through the book of Numbers. And I never thought I would say I've really enjoyed digging through it, but I have. I've loved this. I've learned so much. And, you know, the fun part about doing this is that not only do we get to interact with, uh, you know, folks in, in a on uh, one-on-one uh, reality in a school in Indiana or online folks all over. Maybe it's on radio, maybe it's online. But then we also get to hang out with some folks here in, in the, do we call this a studio? I mean, it's a full-fledged warehouse is really what it is. And so what I love is, is that it's interactive. So we got some folks here to join us today. we got our peanut gallery. And I love this part because our whole goal, by the time you leave, by the time we leave from this message, is that does it point to the Messiah? Where and how does the Pentateuch point to the Messiah? Now, just as a quick recap, just so you can see where we're going. So we have paintings that we've done for every book of the Bible. So here we have the, the painting of Genesis. And every uh, book of the Bible, we want one word. Sean, do you happen to know what our one word is for, for numbers? Take a, take a big guess here. What this is a rock. So the Messiah is the rock. And I love this picture because in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Kevin, if you would, would you go there? It says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. So Christ, it says, actually followed. It says, and that rock was Christ. And we know that multiple times Moses, one time he was told to strike the rock twice and he did it. And then the other time he was told to speak to the rock and just out of bad habit, what he was supposed to do is speak to it and Moses hit it. And even though despite all that, uh, God still said, I'm, I'm with you guys. And so you have the book of Numbers over and over and over God reveals himself. In fact, in Numbers 33, as we point to the, our teaching today, God's with us every step of the way. And that's what I love about Christ being the rock. Every step of the way, he was with them. And partly because he reminds them in Numbers 33, don't forget me, is what happens. The Israelites are over and over, they forget themselves. You know, we have Steve Bachman here in the audience. I'd, I'd love just to ask you very simply, do you happen to remember what you did when you were 28 years old? Oh, my memory's almost gone. Okay, that's so all I needed old. to hear. <laughs> that's it. That's the point. It's like every one of us, like in that moment, in that season, we remember, and it is everything. But you asked me what I did a year ago. It's kind of like, ah, what did I do? And what he's saying is the Israelites, what he's saying to us is, guys, I want you to remember everything that I've done. Why? Because I'm going to give you the promised land. In order to embrace the promised land, you got to remember what I've told you. And so as I've told you, I'm going to give you this land. And so in Numbers 34, they're given an incredible land. I'm going to give you, and by the way, you're going to experience the enemies. I think it's foolish when people preach messages that say, hey, if you follow God, it's going to be great. That's not necessarily the God that I follow. Jesus says you're giving up everything. And just because you give up everything doesn't mean like, oh, everything is just going to be the best. If Jesus's life was a little bit harder at times, I should expect, so should ours. And the Israelites were as well. And so in Numbers 34, then we begin to transition into Numbers 35 about this land that they've been given. They're allocating the land. This is the property. But now as we begin to unfold Leviticus 35, we're going to get into what, what everybody calls Levitical cities. Okay, The Levites, let's just call it out as it is, they weren't given land. Okay, They had other roles. They had other responsibilities, which we'll get into. And so in verse 1 of Numbers 35, the scripture says this, The Lord again spoke to Moses. In the plains of Moab, and we know you guys just finishing up the stages of the journey, this is where he ended up. In the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. Scripture continues on in verse 2. Command the Israelites, 
to give cities out of their hereditary property for the Levites to live in and pasture land uh, around the cities. So all of the tribes are supposed to give up cities, okay, out of their property for the Levites. It, it feels like they're a bunch of mooches. Like in some ways, now we're going to talk about why that's not the case because their role is super, super important. The mentality is that this is what they're told. And now here, watch this in verse 3. He says this in verse 3, the cities will be for them to live in and their pasture lands will be for the herds, their flocks and all their other animals. Why do you think it's important that they have property for their animals? They're doing all the sacrifices. They're doing a whole lot of work for plus millions of people. It would probably be important that they have property that they can at least put it on. So sounds real common sense, but I think when we read the scriptures, we forget to humanize these people. We forget to say, oh yeah, this is real tangible. This is how they would have to experience it. That's what I love about the scriptures. God makes it, as it says in Psalm 119, so that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is literally for the here and now and also for the future. So in verse 4, uh, the scripture says this, The pasture lands okay, of the cities you are to give the Levites will extend from the city wall 500 yards on every side. I'm glad Wade is in here today. Uh, Wade used to be a math teacher. Now in verse 5, here we go, okay? Verse 5, it just says this, Measure 1,000 yards outside the city for the east side, 1,000 yards for the south side, 1,000 yards for the west side, and 1,000 yards for the north side, with the city in the center. This will belong to them as pasture lands for the cities. Now I know our guys sitting down can't see this, but just to give you a visual of really what we're talking about. So here you have a city, okay? And then in that city, what you're going to see is, is that that land you should expect a thousand yards. In every direction, you should expect this property. Now, I think it's pretty cool. In verse six, now here's where we kind of start getting into the nuts and bolts. Scripture says, the cities you give the Levites will include six cities of refuge, which you must provide so that the one who kills somebody may flee there. In addition to these, give 42 other cities. So the city that I just drew, you should expect that the Levites are actually given a total of uh, let's go to Wade. Wade, how many cities are they given, math man? 48. So you have 48, you have 48 cities. Within the 48 cities, you have what we would call uh, six cities, and they are called the city of refuge. Uh, what you're going to see, first of all, up here is it's, it's an asylum, a place that people can run to. Because I think it's really weird how they just, just real quickly, they put in there, oh, by the way, you have a city of refuge so that you can have a place where if somebody kills them, they can run there. So here you have six cities, okay? Now watch this. You're going to have uh, three on this side and then three on this side. And where I want to go is if we can, in Joshua 20, verse 7. So here are the six cities of refuge, okay? So first of all, you have one of the cities, Kadesh, okay? Kadesh is in the hill country right away if you're from Texas. Like my first thought is hill country. In Indiana, nobody ever says the terminology hill country. So in the hill country, okay, of Naphtali. Now Naphtali would be what? That would be a tribe. Okay, now remember, we talked about for those that were on yesterday, okay, just as a remember, uh, we said in, in Numbers 34, in Ezekiel 47, and then those are the ones that kind of picture, I'm going to go weird for a second, those are the ones that picture the United States. They're doing the border of all of the country. So they're the ones painting the picture of Canada and Mexico, okay? Does that make sense? We're describing all of Israel all the way around. But if you study Joshua 14 through 19, then you're going to study the Indianas, the Ohios, the Michigans. You're going to study the states. So in Joshua 14 through 19, and then obviously in a 20, you're going to you're going to study the tribes. 
So what you have here is the, the tribal lands. Okay, so in Naphtali, in that tribe, so I think to me, just as a practical, Naphtali had to give up one of their cities for a city of refuge. Does that make sense? So for all you know, Kadesh to them was really, really important. But the scripture says you got to give up one of their cities. So maybe they're like, yeah, hey, you can have that one. <laughs> so here's one of them, Kadesh. Scripture continues on in Joshua 20, verse 7. Another one is Shechem. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And now we know that Ephraim is right on the border of Manasseh. Now, uh, we're going to keep going here. And then it says Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Okay, Hebron is going to be real close. It's going to be in the Negev. It's going to be in the wilderness, Okay, near Beersheba as well. So Hebron, so you have three cities of refuge. And all we know at this point, at least in Numbers 35, is that if anybody has killed somebody, this is where they can run to. Well, I mean, in the United States, can you imagine if Richardson, which is where we're at, became a city of refuge? I don't know if we would sign up to have all the murderers just come here. But that's, that's the reality of actually what, what we're talking about here. Now, that's on this side. This side is known as the promised land. Okay, we just got into this with Numbers 34. Now, on this side, it gets really interesting. It says across the Jordan on the east side are the other cities of the refuge. Okay, it says they selected Bezer, okay, on the wilderness plateau from Reuben's tribe. Kevin, uh, let's go back. Tie this in for me. Why are they on this side of the land? Because they had a lot of livestock and they liked the way it looked. They didn't want to go into the promised land. Okay, so Reubenites and the Gadites, they, in fact, Jeff and Wesley, I think you guys were here for that, weren't you guys, when we talked through this? They saw that they had so much livestock that even though God promised them all of this land, they said, you know what, our plan is better. We're going to stay on this side of the land. I hate to tell you, but any time that you decide to change God's plan for your plan usually doesn't work. But just to give you an idea, that's why we're on the east side, because they said, I prefer this plan as well. So we have Bezar, you have Romoth and Gilead from Gad's tribe. And then the other one is, is Golan, Golan and Bashan from Manasseh's tribe. So it's kind of weird. You, you see your first church split in some regards. OK, here you have half a tribe of Manasseh this way, half a tribe of Manasseh this way. OK. I'm willing to bet there probably was some hard feelings. I'm willing to bet some cousins got split. I'm willing to bet some brothers got split. Like this is the reality of what we're talking about. But in, in regard, regardless of who's on what side, all of these are cities of refuge. There's six of them. Six cities of refuge, a total of, Wade, this one's for you, 48. Okay. 48 Levitical cities. Now, crazy enough, not a trick question. Do they own these cities? No. They're just, given it to them. Strangely enough, I'm going to go drastic for a second. If you're in Israel today, technically nobody owns any land. Do you know that? If you are in Israel, it's always renting from the state. You can say, yeah, I own it, but you know that ultimately the state of Israel owns the land. It's kind of in a weird understanding. It's kind of the same thing. Now, I will tell you just randomly, <laughs> Rich and I were on, <laughs> this is touching a rabbit trail. Rich and I were on the Mount of Olives and I, I believe scripture says that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split, right? Scripture says it will split when he puts his feet. Okay. And the Old Testament talks about this. And we offered, I, I keep offering. There's a Muslim there who owns an ice cream shop. And I keep offering to buy land from this guy. And he was like, no, I want Jesus to be my neighbor if he's going to come back. And so we're trying to negotiate some land deals to get it back for us. But anyway, it didn't, it didn't work. So, Doug, maybe I could use your help in the Mount of Olives. So, all right, here we go now. In verse 7, it says, again, the total number of cities you give the Levites will be 48 along with their pasture lands. Now watch it says in, vo- in, uh, in verse 9. Now, let me, let me just say this. The 48 cities are completely scattered. 
completely scattered. Okay, because each tribe is to give up at least from what we can tell in studying uh, in studying this. Each tribe, roughly, they would say is giving up four cities, 12 times four. So each tribe is giving up at least four cities. Okay, Uh just to kind of give you an idea. So the, the mentality is, is that one of the commentators says, Gordon Wenham says, is that all of the Israelites were scattered. The Levites were scattered. I'm going to go to you guys in the back row. Let's go to the go-tos in the back here for a second. You guys got any idea of the importance of scattering the Levites once they entered the promised land? Or I'll go to you guys as well if you guys have anything. What, what would be the value of scattering the Levites? Wesley, you got any thoughts? Wade? Pastor Wesley, you got any thoughts? Uh, just got to guess. Uh Obviously, there's a whole lot of stuff in Levitical law and all that stuff that needs to be implemented. I would think these guys are the instituted, so they're like the teachers, the priests, and all that. It's like this guy has studied it. I mean, that's it, you guys. Think about it. Sean, you want to add to that? No. <laughs> all right, so literally, Wesley, you're right on. Think about this, Kevin. Can you go to uh, go to Exodus? Man, I think my writing's right here. Go to Exodus 19. We'll try this one. I'm pretty sure. The mentality for all of Israel in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 is that there's three things that they are described as all of the Israelites. Okay, now watch this. It says, now, if you listen to me and carefully keep my your covenant, uh, my covenant, he says, you will be my own possession. So scripture says that Israel will become a special treasure. Scripture says that they will be God's possession out of all the peoples, although all the although all the earth is mine. Now watch in verse six. He also says now he's not just talking to like just Aaron and the priests. He says, my nation, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. If the promised land is really to become a holy land, okay, really, then they need to understand they've all been called to walk out this holiness. They need to be realized that they are a holy nation. And you know what it takes? It takes people holding them accountable. It says, hey, Steve Bachman in Indiana, you know, we're checking in on you. You're checking in on our marriage. You're checking in on, you know, Rich and Shelly. You're checking in on Kevin and Michelle, Jeff and Betsy. You know, you're checking in. Like, that's the role of what the Levites are doing all across the land. It's kind of a cool picture, Sean. I feel like this is a tactic that God employs multiple times, especially in the New Testament in Acts when Paul ravages a yeah. church, Saul ravages a church, and they scatter. Yeah. And part of the part of the reason or part of the benefit of them scattering is that now they're able to spread the gospel throughout the land. hundred percent right. And so it's kind of this, it's incredible how God says, I'm going to give you the borders of the land that we've already talked about. I'm going to implement all of these tribes. It doesn't even matter on this side or this side. God's still gracious enough, isn't he? I think that's what's crazy, Kevin. God's still gracious enough. He's going to put cities of refuge on this side, even though they're disobedient, even though they chose not to take the path that he designed. And then he says, I'm going to scatter my folks, the Levites, all over the place to make sure your eyes are on me, to make sure you realize that I really am the rock that you depend upon. So it's a cool picture. Now, I want to go, if you can, go to John 4, verse 21. I'm going to take it here on extreme case for a second. Jesus is interacting. We know this, the, uh, the woman at the well. In John 4, watch, he says this, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Okay? So what he's saying is, is location isn't going to be that important. Watch in verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now watch in verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. I actually think the spreading of the Levites all across the land is the beginning preparation of people understanding. It's not necessarily about the location. It's about the presence of God. And so to me, Jesus actually even references, hey guys, it's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship and how you worship. And so here you have six cities spread throughout. And then you got an additional 42 because God wants people to begin to understand you are holy wherever you're at. Go church on you for a second. In fact, some of you guys haven't seen this. It's kind of fun. We have some folks in Wisconsin. They made a soapbox for me. So anytime I get all excited or I get a little bit more animated than I should, you know, uh, they, they decided to make a soapbox for me. And I think what's crazy is that I think sometimes what we've done in America, let's face it, is we make it about where we go and on those Sunday mornings. I think Jesus would just very clearly say it's, it's not about the location. It's about will you worship me in spirit and in truth. And then let's even go one farther is the reality is that we have charismatics and we have conservatives. Some like to tend to focus more on the spirit. Some like to tend to focus more on the truth. Jesus says it's not about any of that. It's about will you worship me in spirit and in truth. And crazy enough, I actually think Numbers 35 begins to prepare us and what he's really after. So if you would, let's go back if we can. I want to go back to verse 8. Strangely enough, some of the commentators will say that some of these Levitical cities... uh, were hamlets. I wish Drew Gibbs had a mic on because he probably would know that definition of a hamlet. Does anybody know the definition of a hamlet? Anybody ever heard of that word? So I want you. Do you know that, Jeff? I don't know the definition, but I've heard of it. Okay, so the hamlet here, it's just, it implies, don't worry, I didn't know that either. Hey, Sean, microphone. Uh, Hey, microphone, you have the microphone. (laughs) So here's the deal. Hamlets are maybe a small houses, few small houses that occupy uh, uh, together. So when you think of Levitical cities, don't always necessarily think like major metropolitan areas. Like it could just be a couple little shacks, for lack of a better word. Just a small, I mean, it could add some larger cities. So now watch this. In verse 8, it says this. Of the cities that you give from the Israelite territories, you should take more from a larger tribe and less from a smaller one. Each tribe is to give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance it receives. Okay, scripture continues on in verse 9. Now he begins to unfold what actually takes place in the cities of refuge. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. I love this because it's going to happen, right? He's not saying if you do this, when you do this. And I I wish we would take the word of God more seriously like that. Sometimes I think we, we look at like the Great Commission and say, oh yeah, that's an option. It's not an option. Like, these are the things that he's asking us to do. So when you go into Canaan, okay, I'm going, I'm in. (laughs) When I'm asking you to give up the Levitical cities, okay, fine, I'll I'll give up the Levitical cities. When we hold on to things too closely, I think we miss uh, what God wants in our lives. And he's saying, guys, I want you to to give this up. Now watch in verse verse 11. I want you to designate cities to serve as cities of refuge for you. So that a person who kills somebody unintentionally may flee there. Okay, well, so right now one qualifier is that if you killed somebody accidentally, not really sure how that works. <laughs> and apparently it was a problem. <laughs> if you kill somebody unintentionally, they can flee to, tangibly, one of the cities of refuge. They're on the east side of Jordan. They can go to Golan, Ramoth, or Bezar, Hebron, Shemak, Shechem, or Kadesh. You know, the whole thing about Shechem, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me. Do you guys remember? Do you remember Shechem? Do you remember the two brothers from the tribes of Israel? Here you have Simeon and Levi in Genesis 34. What do they do? They kill Shechem and then they trick everybody. They ask everybody to get circumcised. And then on a certain day, they go in and they wipe out everybody, right? Totally brought disgrace to their father. 
And here we are, Shechem becomes one of the cities of refuge. Shechem caused crazy problems for all of uh, Israel. And now that's a place that people can go to. To me, it just shows how God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. And here Levi is the one who brought death and destruction and the city of refuge is for him. Not really, but I think you get the point. And to me, there's so much power in this. And so, all right, here's the deal, guys. Uh, Unintentionally, they can come here. In other words, uh, you know, this can be their home. And it says this, you will have cities as a refuge from the avenger. Okay, as a refuge from the avenger. So if you killed somebody accidentally, an avenger is what? You guys ever watch the movies, Avenger? Rich wouldn't let me put up pictures. He said it would be copyright infringement. Somebody who uh, sets out to do right for wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always like the, the guy who's going after somebody, but in their mind, it's okay, right? You kill my daughter, I can now kill you. Like, that's an Avenger, okay? So that's the reality of, of what we're talking about. So you can flee from the Avenger so that the one who kills somebody will not die until he stands trial before the assembly. The cities you select will be your six cities of refuge, okay? Select three cities across the Jordan. We're in verse 14 of Numbers 35. So we already said, here's the cities on the three side, on the other side. Totally, there's going to be six cities. And it says the foreigner or temporary resident can come there so that anybody who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. So we've pretty much established if you've unintentionally killed somebody, this is your home. Now, watch this in verse 16. If a person strikes somebody with an iron object and death results, it's murder. Usually you're not holding something. If you're holding an iron object, it's probably premeditated. And that's what they're, that's what they're implying. A murderer must be put to death. Remember, Kevin, can you go there? Genesis 4, verse 15. There's multiple places in scripture, but Genesis 4, verse 15 talks about, well, let's face this. In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. In Genesis 9, if you'll go there, Kevin, Genesis 9, verse 5. Yeah, it's spelled the same way you did Genesis 4. So anyway, he just says, I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. So that's what they're saying. If you killed somebody, your life deserves to die. He's pretty forward about it in Numbers <laughs> Numbers 35. Oh, by the way, in verse 17, if you have a stone, I'm back in Numbers 35, if you have a stone in your hands, it probably means you're premeditated. You will be put to death. Verse 18, if you have a wooden object, so now we're talking about if you have iron, if you have a stone, or if you have a wooden object, all of this has been premeditated. You will deserve death, and and you will die. But now watch in verse 19. The avenger of blood himself is to kill the murderer. How about that? So retaliation is actually welcomed. In this, in this case, an avenger is actually the protector of the family rights. He becomes, quote unquote, the kingsman redeemer. He becomes a person who can then replace that. He, he takes on uh, the bloodshed. So in verse 19, the avenger of blood himself, the retaliation is to kill the murderer. When he finds him, he is to kill him. It's actually not an option. You're obligated. Sounds kind of drastic. In verse 20, it says this, If anybody in hatred pushes a person or throws an object at him with malicious intent and he dies, or in hostility if he strikes him with his hand and he dies, the one who struck him must be put to death. In other words, if this is done in hostility, if this is done in anger, if this is done with premeditation, you will die, and guess who gets to do it? The Avenger. All of a sudden, I'm not kidding, actually. The movie Avengers kind of comes to life for me a little bit. And I'm not even a movie guy. But that, that mentality, that wording, just like, whoa, okay. Now watch in verse 22, though. 
But if anybody, now we're going to talk about what this looks like in a city of refuge. If anybody suddenly pushes a person without hostility or throws an object to him without malicious intent, <laughs> you accidentally throw a stone at their head. You know, like I'm not really sure how that works. Or without looking, drops a stone that could kill a person, he dies. But he was not his enemy. He wasn't trying to harm him. The assembly, check this out. They then get to come to the city of refuge. So just practically, they can come to Shechem. They can come to Hebron. They meet the elders, okay? And then they actually judge whether or not this was done with intent or not intent. Kind of a simple process. But man, I, I think it's, it's pretty radical. So if he's guilty, the residents turn him over. So if they find at this court in the city of refuge, if they find him guilty, guess what happens? Anybody want to guess? They turn him over to the avenger. So he comes to the city of refuge, says, I'm not guilty. They find him guilty. All of a sudden, he has to now die. Now, if he is innocent, that manslayer, the person who killed that person accidentally, he stays in the city of refuge until it says in verse 25, the death of the high holy priest, the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So you could stay in Shechem or Hebron and you will stay there until the high priest dies. Who knows how long that could be? Your quote-unquote prison sentence is based on one man's life. I'll be honest, as I've studied this multiple times, none of this stood out to me until today. It is mind-blowing to me that when one man dies, other people are set free. People from the city of refuge were actually set free because of the high priest's death. I think when I see this and I, I realize this, I begin to see what Tom Constable says. It says that the priest, uh, he atoned for the sins when he died. These people were guilty before the Lord, whether they, they were or not. They couldn't leave the city of refuge. But until the high priest physically died, they're stuck in their sin. The New Testament talks about Jesus being our high priest and he dies for us. You know, for us. Well, let's just go there. Uh, there's more in Numbers 35 and no, more in Numbers 36, but because of time, just so, you, just so you know this, you can't, the end of the Numbers 35 says you can't buy your ransom with money. Because you know we've talked about atonement uh, sacrifices. There's atonement money that could actually get you free from your sins. Scripture is very clear. You can't pay for this. You can't pay to get out of this, which is why I think it's mind-blowing to me that it has to take the death of a high priest. And Kevin, to go with what you're saying, and, and I love what Warren Wearsby says, Jesus becomes, you ready for this, our city of refuge, and he becomes our high priest. He becomes our place where the guilty can literally, as Wearsby says, flee by faith to the city, and then from refuge find it only in the death of the high priest. Kevin, can you go to Hebrews 6, verse 18? Hebrews 6, verse 18, it's just, it blows my mind. So, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. I mean, let's face it. Jesus is the ever-living, never-dying high priest that welcomes and brings upon salvation that is secure for all of us. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, Hebrews 7, verse 25, it just says this. Therefore, he is always able, I love this, to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is always able to seize and save those in the cities of refuge. And here's the reality. All of us at some point are in the city of refuge. 
Why? Because Jesus took on the sin, just like the high priest's death did. He took on the sin. Jesus takes on the sin, and there's no more condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. We, as followers of Yeshua, are no longer stuck in Hebron, Shechem, Kadesh, Golan, Ramoth, and Bezar. We're, we're not stuck in cities of refuge. We're not stuck there in our sin. We know we've been set free. And it comes through Christ. You know, this is uh, Numbers, the book of Numbers. Man, it's been a pleasure really digging through this word. There's a lot here, and I promise you, if you, all of us in this room... If we just sat aside and pulled some time for an hour to dig it, we'd learn a whole lot more. There's always so much here. And I just want to say it's been a pleasure and a delight walking through the book of Numbers, because guess what? We get to do the book of Deuteronomy tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.